Good evening and welcome to another episode of Harmonics. Today's guest is legendary. He is one of the best guitar players in the world. He has achieved high status and he is Harvey Mandel. Harvey, welcome. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Good to be here. Thank you, sir. You know, I'm going to get into questioning right away with you. Um, Harvey, what actually made you gravitate at an early age to be a guitarist? Uh, believe it or not, back in the old folk days when bongos and congas were happening, I had this urge to play bongo drums. Mm -hmm. And I actually hooked up with this guy in Chicago, and we went down to a couple of the folk places, and he would sing and play rhythm guitar, and I would play on the bongos. And one day, out of nowhere, I just picked his guitar up and said, show me a chord, one chord. So he showed me how to do an E chord, I remember, <laughs> distinctly. Wow. And I just fell in love with the sound of the guitar. And like from that moment on, I just, that was it. I just, I knew I was going to be a guitar player. So what age was that about? Uh, 16. I started 16. when I was 16. You were actually playing, you started, that's your first chord was an E chord. Right. And you, and you got a guitar, you didn't know what it was. Now you were playing, obviously you were playing acoustic. It was, my dad took me down to a pawn shop, a friend of his, and I, I got it. my first Harmony acoustic guitar for $16. I love it. I love it. So you played that for how long before you went into electric? Uh, not very long, just like a month or two. And then I had a friend in school who was very electronic-minded, and he showed me how I could take a, a phonograph cartridge, and I literally put the needle on the wood and ran a wire into a little radio that I had. And he knew how to tap in, and that was my amplifier. Oh. And when my dad walked in and saw that, he said, okay, I see you're serious, so now I'm taking you down to Sears. <laughs> and you bought a Sears. And we got my first Sears real electric guitar, which was a silver tone, which That's was so back in the day. It was back like very cool. Did you, now Harvey, did you actually, when, when you got your silver tone, did you also get an amp with it? Yep. The silver, do you have that now? Still? Oh, no. It's God. all gone. If um, I would have kept all the magic guitars and amps I had, I, I would have been a millionaire this yeah, day yeah, just, uh, from, exactly. just from that equipment. Really? But in them days, I, I always like bought something, used it, and then I would get rid of it, sell it, and graduate to the next thing, and so on and so on until I got the really top-flight instruments and amps and stuff. So, so at 16, and then you got your elect your first electric guitar, what age again? 18? 1961, no. 62, somewhere in that time period? Uh... uh well, before the before the Beatles came, was it before then? Yeah, it was pre-Beatles, and during the Beatles, of course. Who is who is your who is your influence? What were you hearing? What would you? I know that you made a statement one time you don't copy, but what were you? Who are the guitar players that you were looking the at? The absolute Bible for me was the Ventures record, the first Walk Don't Run Ventures, and that was my Bible of guitar. There were no blues records available. There were no. Jimmy Hendrix's, there were no, you know, there was B.B. King, but he existed in another world that I didn't know anything about at that time. Mm -hmm. So my whole world was, that I could, that I heard on the radio was the Ventures, because they actually had a couple of hits back then. And their Walk Don't Run record really is like a Bible for beginning guitar. If you learned everything on that record, you were on your way. You were on your way. And that's exactly what I did. I learned oh, every song on there, note for note. And that was my start. And from there is when I graduated to the blues thing, mm -hmm. where I was out uh, one night and I met this fellow from Chicago called Sammy Fender. Mm -hmm. 
black gentleman and he was a really cool blues player and stuff and he took me down to Twist City in the heart of the black ghetto where you didn't go unless you had protection and you right, knew somebody. Exactly, I can understand. And we went there and that's where I saw Buddy Guy and all these famous black musicians and I actually played down there like for a whole year mm -hmm. with those guys and with a little trio of my own band. Once a week I'd get to go up there and do my thing there like on a Sunday afternoon they would let the let us amateurs get up there. But the truth is, after about three months of being introduced to Buddy Guy and the blues and all that stuff, I could get right up there and play all that stuff right with him. You were, you know, you said, I, I've, I've listened to you and I've, I've heard some commentary. You said that you were hearing things. So when you actually, you learned uh, from the blues players that you were around. That was my, the first stuff is the rock and roll venture style right. and that graduated into the blues. Mm -hmm. And from there, after after really going through that whole gamut is where I could, like I was saying, I could hear where guitar was going at that time, way before it ever got there. I, I knew that kind of sustaining the Jimi Hendrix sound that he made famous, but, but a lot of people like myself were doing that same thing in Chicago, but it wasn't on record, per se. Uh, you know, you talked about uh, the blues gentleman that you met. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some names out because... Uh, some of them are not uh, alive, and I just want to get your recollection or your take on, and I'm going to name some giants in the blues because I, I, you, were, you're, you were there. Muddy Waters. One of the greatest of all time, of course. I mean, what can you say about him that hasn't been said a hundred times? And... What is a personal thing that you could think about him when? Was he always dressed really nice? And you know, what... I only got to see him a few times and got to jam with him one time, but he... He always was dressed slick and cool. I mean, he always had, when I saw him, he always had the magic suit. The hair was was, was, was muddy water. Yeah, it was processed big time. And, <laughs> but that was the look then, you know. So. Uh, Albert King, did you have a pleasure to Albert King, yeah, he was really cool. And I, and I had a great time with him because we were on tour with Can Heat and Albert King in Australia. Mm -hmm. And this is not long before he died. Oh. So I got to be, for a whole month, I got to hang out with them every night, mm -hmm. every night and Also stuff. a class. I, I, those guys seem to be a little bit different. We'll talk a little bit about that later than the guitar players that came later on. They seem to be a, a sharing group of men. They would share Well, them. they weren't insecure. Interesting. They weren't insecure, and they weren't afraid to play and do their thing, and who saw it and who knew what was going on, it was okay. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have the opportunity to to actually uh, play with Holland Wolf? Yep. Tell me about Holland. Big man? He was Steve. huge, and he was playing at my cousin, Norman Wagner, who unfortunately passed away some years ago, but he owned Alice's Restaurant, like this really cool club in Chicago for a while, and all the top blues guys played there, including at that time I was playing with Pure Food and Drug Act, and Holland Wolf was definitely one of the guys that played there. and. Mm -hmm. I fortunately in Chicago got to play, I mean, you could name a list of a hundred well-known blues people. I got to play with all of them at one time. Right and they accepted you readily, didn't they? You were just... Yeah. They just, they, yeah, you were... You I were mean, myself, of... Mike Bloomfield, Steve Miller, Barry Goldberg, all those kind of people, Charlie Musselwhite. We were, we were the white blues guys that really got in there and, you know... You talked about Buddy Guy. What did Buddy Guy do for you that... Or, you know, the how Buddy, I, I've seen Buddy a long time ago at the boarding house, and he was playing with Junior Wells. Um, what was Buddy? How was, what was Buddy's well, personality? in the old days, he was 
really a showman and he you know when he was younger of course and could do these incredible physical things i mean i've seen him leap off stage and hang with one <laughs> with one arm on a rafter or a beam in this club and be playing one-handed and he'd run out in the street with his hundred foot guitar cord and stuff and they do all these guitar battles and i learned a lot just from watching him just the vibe of him and certain things that he played he was like a little sloppy and wild and you know and not the most precision player in the world but mm -hmm. but he had this unbelievable energy and and wildness in his playing and stuff that definitely rubbed off on me so you you incorporated some of his showmanship back when you were young that's you just... not so much the showmanship it was more the, the guitar ability and stuff I, i've technique. never been a leaper and stuff like okay. buddy guy that's that's he's you, coming you... from another world then you you came um, you were in Chicago you, were, you in many ways you were like one of the pioneers of the modern modern electric music there you got in that situation then you migrated west is that right, correct and you were right. with the Char were you with Charlie I was with Charlie Musselwhite in the midst of all these things we've been talking about the very first album that I ever did was what was with Barry Goldberg and then we did a Charlie Musselwhite record and that was very cool because it was myself Charlie and Barry Goldberg and uh, Fred Bilo on drums, and I forget the baby, all famous old-time King Kong blues guys and mm -hmm. stuff. And we did that record, and it was called Stand Back. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the classic blues records even to this day. It's right. been recognized as that. And out of nowhere, about two years later, we get a call from Bill Graham, my first producer, Abe Cash, who was with KSN back in them days, the KSAN record uh, right. radio station. He was playing the uh, Stand Back record and it became a big hit, so Bill Graham invited us to come out and play at the Fillmore. That's how we came out, literally. That's how you actually came out here? The first time. You came out, uh, you, there's also, b before we go into the Fillmore, you played at the uh, Matrix? Well, that was afterwards. That was afterwards. And, and the Fillmore was... was my first San Francisco gig. Really? And... We were like the opening act, Harvey Mandel with Charlie Musselwhite. The middle act was Mike Bloomfield and the Electric Flag, and the and the uh, final act was Eric Clapton and the Cream. So they were making it like the new guy, the middle guy, and the King Kong guy at that time. So that was my first show. Oh my! So it was so you, pretty wild. You got to interact with Mike Bloomfield a lot. Well, I knew him from Chicago. We didn't interact that much, but I did know him, and we we did hang on a bunch of times. Now, watching Cream, when the, was that the first time you, obviously you, it wasn't probably the first time you've seen Clapton, but was that the first time you've seen That was the first time I've seen and what did you Cream and Clapton in person. Really, what was that like when you were there? Because you were in many firsts in, in, in rock and roll. History. Yeah, it was, it was great because Clapton was one of my favorite heroes when I very first started playing too because like when he came out with that first record with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, mm -hmm. That was a classic. I mean, right. every guitar player in the planet probably went crazy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was pre-Jimi Hendrix and stuff, too, even before I really heard Jeff Beck at all, mm -hmm. except on a very a couple of things like the Yardbird things. But the, Jeff, but the Eric Clapton thing was a real classic back then. So that was my first time getting to meet him at the Fillmore, which was great. Was he receptive also to you? I mean, yeah, he was. Guys he, at that time, he was unbelievably nice. Mm -hmm. And I walked in, and here's the funny thing, is I came in from Chicago with my this little Fender amplifier with 112-inch speaker, and I look up on stage, and here's Eric Clapton with a wall of marshals. I mean, a giant wall of them, like three or four behind him just for himself. 
and he was so cool. I asked him, I said, I think I could borrow one of those things during my set. Not even a whole stack, just, just one half a stack in the end. No problem. And I got a great sound out of it, I have to say, even afterwards he was remarking about the sustain and the weirdness because I had my magic ways then of, yes, you did. of getting that sound. Let's talk about that. You've been called the king of sustain. How did that all come about? And uh, that's all back from my Chicago days. Like I say, all the guitar players back then were trying to get that kind of funky, sustaining compression sound. And back in them days, it was hard to get. You didn't have the array of pedals and electronics and all the little gadgets they have now, which kind of help you to do those things. Right. So your only way to get that sound was to have the magic guitar and be able to plug into a certain amplifier certain ones that would give you that overdriven kind of sustaining sound. And I was like a maniac at trying to find the magic things and experimenting with different speakers and I would punch holes in speakers and I used to take little amplifiers with alligator clips and clip them onto bigger amplifiers with the speaker so that distorted sound would go into that speaker. And it gave, you know, I had incredible different oh, setups. Things don't seem the same, no, no. 